Hi, everyone. I'm Jill Smokler, and I've got issues. I've got a ton of issues, actually, and I'm pretty sure you do, too. And I'm positively sure we'll both feel better having talked about them. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get started. I'm so thrilled to have Stacey London on the podcast today. Stacey is best known as the co-host of the iconic TLC show, What Not to Wear, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Style. In 2020, she co-founded State of Menopause, a non-hormonal product line for those experiencing menopausal symptoms. She then sunset the brand in 2023, recognizing the need to focus on education and healthcare advocacy for those in midlife and menopause. Her next project, a media platform dedicated to these same issues, will debut in early 2024, and I can't wait. Okay, so I would love to start out talking about the difference between style and fashion, because I only know that from you, because to me, they are just, I, I am a major before in every before and after you've ever done. Oh, am, no, no, no. It's true. But I've, I've always sort of embraced it by thinking like, I'm too, not I'm too evolved to care or I'm too self-confident, but I always sort of just thought like they're fashion people and they're not fashion people. And I'm just not a fashion person. So I don't need to pay any attention to that. And so I just sort of dress to hide my flaws and like, just think if I like hug my belly that nobody else will see it and do all the things that <laughs> you warn against. Um, so I just love, what is the difference? What is yeah, the difference? Jill, I mean, first of all, I, there are so many things about what you just said that I, I need, I take <laughs> issue with. Um, oh I agree with you. There are fashion people and non-fashion people, but everybody is a style person. So I wrote about this extensively in the beginning of my book, The Truth About Style, which is 10 years old this year. So I better get on it and write another book. But um, it's time. That book is timeless in the fact that I think that that particular subject matter, the difference between fashion and style does not change and has not changed. Um, Fashion is an industry for me that runs on insecurity, right? It's about what you're not. It's about what you need in order to be valued or to be considered cool or in the know or super trendy or whatever it is that we're assigning to, you know, whatever the next it object is. But style is about um, the person, not the industry. And it is Mm -hmm. about your personal kind of sense of self-expression. And anybody can do that at any time. And when you say things like hide your flaws, I would argue that um, there is a kind of more potentially positive way to look at that, which I call, and and this, please don't compare me to Gwyneth here, but um, I call it conscious camouflage, right? Because you're aware of what you don't love about your body, but you're not beating yourself up. And it's not about hiding flaws. It's about sort of playing to your strengths, understanding your body's geometry and finding clothes that fit well, because fit is everything. Fit is is sort of the basis of any good personal style because it shows that you are you have some self knowledge you have an understanding of your body right when I see people who are wearing clothes that don't fit them that are too tight that are too big I'm like they're out of there's a mind body link that's missing and it's mm-hmm. very important to be that kind of self aware and have that intimacy between your brain and your body in order for your style to really resonate with you 
Now, forget about other people for a second, right? There's a way for this to resonate with you that I think is, um, that is about controlling your narrative. And that gives you agency over the way other people may think about you or the, other, the way other people may treat you before they even know you. And that's mm-hmm. a pretty amazing superpower for all of us to have. Yikes. And it's, um, <laughs> well, that's just, I mean, I never really thought about it as important as it is and as a representation of how I feel about myself and what I'm presenting. Um, and I sort of, how I feel about how I look is so closely tied to my weight that, of course. and I, and I don't really know what my weight is at any moment because I'm wearing elastic waisted leggings and <laughs> yoga pants all the time. So well, that's okay. sort of, <laughs> I mean, that's, yes, that's, that's the first problem. So where do you even start if you are like me and you are just sort of yeah. dressing like you are still in maternity clothes, but it's been 20 years? Sure. And listen, I think that this is the issue for, for most people. Right. Um, when it comes to style, uh, when we look at the fashion industry, we saw this rise in body inclusivity. And then now, um, you know, Katie Storino, who is a real kind of body positive and, and size inclusive advocate, is already saying that retailers, they're still failing in terms of these extended sizes and the way that this is working and why retail is having such a difficult time right now. I think she's starting a three part series on her podcast, Boob Sweat, that is. I don't know, but start soon. <laughs> um, but I just heard her talking about it on Instagram. And I really was thinking about the fact that we have been struggling against fashion's version of an ideal body forever, right? I mean, we value kind of being thin over everything else when it comes to the way you look in clothes, instead mm-hmm. of recognizing that there are clothes for all body types. Sometimes it's harder to find them than not. Um, and really figuring out what your body type is and what is going to be flattering to you. That's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. And there are a lot of reasons for that very fact that make people kind of revert to elastic waist yoga pants because who has that kind of time to do all that searching? And it's like, does this really, you know, look what we've been through in the last three years. Who the hell cares what we're wearing? I wore pajamas my entire, you know, COVID experience. Like I really understand that for a lot of people, this idea of like getting dressed is exhausting. It can feel um, overwhelming, especially when we do attach um, a particular kind of body type to fashion, but that is not style. Again, I don't believe that your weight has anything to do with you being stylish, but it does, in fact, make it more difficult, you know, sort of the smaller or the bigger you are in inside, of, outside of the, you know, what we're saying is like zero to 14, let's say, in sizes. If you are much smaller or if you are larger, you are going to have a difficult time finding the right fit, right? Marginalized sizing is still an issue. And this whole idea of body positivity just being a trend, like using older models in campaigns one year and saying, you know, we're over ageism is bullshit, (laughs) right? I mean, this is like a, a, a consistent issue that we have when it comes to our culture. This idea of, you know, not falling in the middle of a bell curve you're immediately marginalized and that reduces your choices in any given area. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, one of the things that we have to look at, not just in, in the fashion industry is in all industries, particularly what I've been working in so much lately is healthcare 
is looking at the most marginalized in our society and thinking, how can we, what can we do to benefit them? Because if we are doing stuff to benefit the most marginalized, then we are helping everybody else. And that's Mm -hmm. the way we need to start thinking about um, style as well. I mean, certainly I think fashion is broken in a lot of ways, right? There's a lot of waste. Um, We need to be thinking about how we can be more conservative with uh, the kinds of, you know, how how much we're actually producing in terms of clothing, what that's doing to, you know, our planet, what we can do with um, sustainability and vintage. And there's a lot to do. But um, having sizes for all is extremely, extremely important. So what is a first step for someone like me who just feels very intimidated by both? I, I feel like I don't have a personal style and I've just adopted the personal style of sort of laziness. And that's a style. <laughs> it is it's a called style. normcore, I think. Um, normcore. Yeah, not yeah. a style that I particularly want to be associated with. So what right. what is a first step for someone who's so daunted? By all of this to just try and yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple of things that I would recommend. Right, first, it's sort of like, what do you know? Are are you into interiors? Are you into art? Are you into anything that sort of um, speaks to a particular opinion you have about color or pattern or shape or uh, texture? Or you know, do you do you love decorating your house? There's a lot of things that you can look at for inspiration. And also like in terms of your coloring, right? You've got like beautiful blonde hair and these light eyes. You can look to people who have the same coloring as you for ideas about what colors might be best on you, what prints might be best on you. Right. Mm. And then, um, I would do, because we're, we're, we don't have to go into stores anymore. And, you know, sometimes it's easier to kind of, uh, order things and try them on at home. And it feels a lot safer to some people, if you know your size and you're ordering things online, then I say you, you're going to have to probably order two or three of the same item to really mm-hmm. figure out what your size is. Now, look for sites where free shipping and return is available to you so you're not spending extra money. But this is a way to avoid you know, feeling like you have to go out in the world and that you can do this in the safety and privacy of your own home to figure mm-hmm. out what fits you. But before that, and I also talk about this in the book, I very much believe that you have to stand in front of a mirror naked. And I mean like nothing, no panties, no bra. I was going to ask you about this. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You got to stand in front of a real mirror, not a skinny mirror, not a warped mirror, and just look at your body. Look at it. Think about what you're feeling as you look at it, think about how you're associating value judgments. You know, I hate my boobs. I love my ass. Think about what you're feeling as you look at your body and continue to look at your body until you can separate that value judgment and that emotional judgment from what is really there. Now, it is perfectly okay for you to say you hate your boobs and you love your tush, but recognizing that and taking then the emotional aspect out of it means that, well, we're going to do something to consciously camouflage the part that I don't love. And we're going to do something to accentuate the part that I do. Mm -hmm. And we're going to find a way that kind of flatters my whole body figure, right? But without being able to kind of really 
honestly look at your body and kind of have that conversation with yourself, it makes it a whole lot harder to decide what is going to fit you. And then based on what fits you, what you want your style to be, right? Those are two different Mm. things. Fit is how it looks on your body. Style is whether what colors you're into, what prints you're into, whether you love texture, pattern, shine. You know, we used to say that I want not to wear all the time, right? Color, pattern, texture, shine. That's what makes an outfit interesting. Now, what I would say to you is like, you know, well, what are your favorite colors and what prints do you like? Or is there artwork that appeals to you? Do you like things that are more floral or do you like things that are more geometric, right? When I say texture, do you like knitwear? Do you like faux fur? Um, You know, when I talk about sparkle, do you like sequins? Would you wear them during the day? These are all questions that I would ask you to kind of hone in on things that I think might make you happy. And if I was still doing personal styling, that would be my first run with you. Let's let's talk about, you know, what fits. Let's talk about what you like in each of these categories. And let's, you know, pull in some stuff. Let's buy some pieces that, you know, we always know are returnable. And let's mix and match and see if we can find things that make you feel the way you want to feel in your clothes. The great thing about clothing is that I feel like it reflex and it deflects, right? So when you're in a great mood um, and you want to control the narrative about who you are, right? You just put on like bright colors or a beautiful dress, you know, something like that that really makes you happy and reflects that happiness, reflects your confidence. But on the days that you're not feeling great, right? Your clothing and your style can act like armor, against anybody knowing what you're feeling, right? If you don't feel like sharing that you're in a bad mood, your clothes can kind of deflect what you're feeling and sort of just give somebody else another message about, mm. you know, how you're feeling. And you can kind of fake it till you make it in terms of your confidence. So in addition to putting your, crossing your arms and like hiding yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because approach. body language, let me tell you something, you're not fooling anybody, right? The idea, yeah. and also you're not fooling anybody if you're wearing uh, sweaters that cover your butt because you don't like your butt, right? If I see you and you're in all black and you're in clothes that don't fit, I mean, I know you're hiding and I also know that there's shame involved or there's something that you don't like about your body. I know that what you're trying to hide is exactly what I see, right? So we make judgment calls about people in three seconds. That's what our brain is meant to do, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. And that to me is the same three seconds that we have to control somebody's judgment about us when they see us, right? And the first thing that you don't want somebody to think in the three seconds that they see you that you're wearing sort of shapeless yoga pants and clothes that don't fit you is that you've given up on yourself, right? Mm. Because that's what I would think. I would be like, oh, no, mm -mm, she doesn't care. She doesn't care about the way she looks. Now, there are so many people who would say to me, look, you know, I don't give a shit. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. And look, I'm not going to argue with that. But what I will say is, unfortunately, I didn't make the rules to this game. I just want you to win. And there is a, you know, a very big difference between understanding the way that you come off to other people. We don't live in isolation. If you want that job, if you are trying to get somebody's attention, you want a date. If you are looking to get a promotion, if you want respect on a board that you sit on, these are things that are, you know, visual, silent, cues that are going to help you get what you want. 
That's sort of what I mean by controlling the narrative, right? I, I Like the suit is a perfect example. If you are interviewing for a job at a conservative financial institution, you know, you're going to have to play that game if you want that job. That's when I say wear the pinstripe suit. But if you yeah. are, you know, auditioning or interviewing to be a dominatrix, like wear the latex cat suit, like context yeah. matters. And so I think that that is what I would say to people who tell me that it doesn't matter what they look like, that they feel that their value has nothing to do with the visual, I would just say the visual is a great way for you to speak volumes about how much you value yourself. That's not really for anybody but you. I love that. And that's a totally different, I've heard you say that before. And that was what was so wonderful about what not to wear was that it wasn't the actual makeover. It was what these people accomplished once they had the self-esteem and the self-worth and how it changed their lives. I mean, it was the makeover too, but that was the part that really stuck with me was the impact. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we used to say all the time, it's not what happens on the show. It's what happens after the show, right? I mean, people left bad marriages. They lost weight. They, they found their dream partner or their dream job, or they had better relationships with their kids. Like there is something, and you know, television being such a visual medium made this format so good because even though you knew sort of what was going to happen at minute 18 or whatever, you really did see a transformation. And there's something incredibly hopeful about transformations. And we knew that the show was entertaining. Clinton and I are funny. We we knew that, you know, there was there was room to have to play and 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 be a little bit snarky and you know break people down to build them back up. We didn't realize how much people, how seriously people were going to take it as sort of an educational tool, you know, that mm. we were sort of appointment television back in the day when we had appointment television. And, um, you know, then people would go shopping based on the fact that we said pointy toe shoes, elongate your leg line. And, you know, if you uh, carry weight in your midsection, go for a wider leg pant, right? Like all of these things that were really geometry in our first book, uh, Dress Your Best, is solely about that. It's solely about finding the fit for the figure that you have, right? It's really color forms and geometry. That's what I like to say. Less about what your personal style could be, but how to find the right shapes for your figure. The last thing that I think that we did not expect the show to evoke was such an emotional response, right? Mm -hmm. So we knew entertainment was sort of top layer. We knew that education suddenly was like people were really using our rules to figure out how to define their waste and all of that stuff. But I don't think that we counted on the emotional um, response that people had to seeing this kind of transformation. I think that people, you know, you know, either thought, well, thank God I'm not a train wreck like that, or <laughs> they really learned something from the show. You know, they really, and, and they really felt for the person who was going through something that was maybe similar to something that they had experienced. And, yeah. you know, we did a ton of people on the show who, whose self-esteem was in the toilet for one reason or another, right? Whether, you know, they had gained weight or they'd lost a partner or, or, or they'd lost a job or they, they felt lost themselves. Um, there was this real sense of regaining a sense of confidence in having agency over your style. And it's like anything else. It's like working out, right? Physical accomplishment also makes you feel um, emotionally and psychologically, like you can do more in the world. And I really believe that sort of dressing in the way that is sort of best for you allows that confidence to kind of spill over into all other areas of your life. And, you know, we, we talk about this, um, 
the saying seeing is believing, right? But I think that shorthand for, you know, seeing um, is really your way to kind of think something different. And if you can Mm -hmm. think something different, you can feel something different. And if you can feel something differently, then you can believe something different. So we we cross over a couple of steps, or even if you were like seeing is feeling about it differently, which means thinking about it differently, which means believing it differently. There is something so important about the visual for that reason. Um, And I think that we saw that time and time again on the show. So let's talk about after the show. After What Not to Wear, I spent about a year um, trying to get this syndicated talk show off the ground, um, which went through many iterations. And sadly, it was bought by uh, two production companies, but it was never aired. Oh, and that was sort of the, the year of my life. Oh, yeah, fuck. it was devastating. It was called The Find, and it was the first, second uh, screen, like shopping app of its kind. And it was. So you, you were know, just sort too of, early. I was too early. I'm. I'm I'm going to be honest with you. I'm early a lot. Like, yep. like when I go to dinner, I'm early and I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes Same. early with ideas. Uh, this was an idea that I think was a little before its time, but spending yep. a year on it felt um, a little heart wrenching, you know, because it, I, I get invested in everything that I work on. Um, and then I did a show called Love, Luster, Run, which was very much what we we're talking about. This difference between the way you perceive yourself and the disconnect with the way others perceive you. And this mm-hmm. is not about what other people think, right? All I care about is you getting what you want out of the life that you want. And how can style and how can your appearance play a role in that game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this that show was really interesting to me. I got to executive produce that show. Um, I, I really was very close with all of the cast and the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was different from What Not to Wear because we weren't trying to make people over to kind of please everybody, right? We were working with young girls who some had canary yellow hair and instead of you know keeping it yellow, we would make it lavender, right? Like Mm -hmm. we weren't trying to be sort of color inside the lines. We were trying Mm -hmm. to find ways to stay true to what these young women wanted to say about themselves in a way that was perhaps a little bit more digestible and understandable to people around them. Mm -hmm. Same kind of respect, same kind of attention that they wanted, but in a way that made it easier to translate, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. than the the choice that they had made in terms of their style. And I found Mm -hmm. that show to be so interesting to do because it Mm -hmm. really was interesting to learn, especially with young women, how they perceived um, the way to get respect, or the way to be kind of um, have people be a little bit afraid of them or, you know, want to dress in a way that was like very sexualized and objectified and what that kind of power meant to them and finding ways to do that, that allowed them to feel those things without people sort of wanting to cross the street. Right. Because I'm like, I don't want people to be afraid of you. I want people to be engaged by you so you can charm the pants off of them, get the job that you want, do whatever you want. Um, So that was a really interesting show, and I did that for three seasons. And then I spent about a year um, doing a lot of guest hosting uh, and, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Being everywhere for a while. (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> no, it? I mean, I was doing a lot of I was doing a lot of guest hosting on the View, but I was also a correspondent, right? So it wasn't always oh, at the it, desk, but I did a bunch of things for them. Um, and then, you know, I I was about forty seven, and my phone was ringing a little less, and I had to have some pretty major spine surgery, which kind of took me out of the game for a second, and. That was about 18 months of rehab. And as I was coming out of that, my dad got very sick. And I just put pretty much everything on hold to be with him and to be with my family. And we were together from March of 2018 until he passed away in November of 2018. And I was pretty torn up, right? I mean, I had physical symptoms. I was having... um, you know, I, I attributed everything either to spine surgery, like, oh, this is anxiety is something that hap- can happen mm-hmm. after spine surgery, um, you know, that I was having heart palpitations. I, I attributed to my dad having heart disease. I was having trouble mm-hmm. sleeping, but I thought that that was stress. I, you know, uh, couldn't remember anything, but I thought that was because I was like afraid, right? So, all you know, my, my brain was sort of all kind of frazzled and I kept making yeah. excuses and dismissing all these different kind of weird things happening to me because I was under so much stress, both physical mm-hmm. and emotional. Um, and when my dad was really sick, he would get a rash, I would get a rash. He would not be able wow. to keep food down. All of a sudden I was allergic to all these different foods. Like I just thought, oh my God, I had no idea that this is what the physical manifestation of grief is. Mm-hmm. I, I've never lost anybody who mattered so much to me before. Mm-hmm. And and after he died, I I you know I talked a lot about grief and I talked a lot about these feelings of anxiety and depression and rage. And again, I attributed this all to grief. And it wasn't until somebody asked me to start beta testing for a company about menopause that I started to learn anything about menopause and understand that all of the issues that I had experienced between uh, my surgery and losing my dad were perimenopausal symptoms. Um, And all these issues are things that you experience during uh, menopause. So I started to do a much deeper dive into the experience because I felt very much that I stopped looking like myself. You know, I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, I I really have aged. And um, it was, it was just, if I I felt like I was looking in the mirror at a stranger and I didn't feel like myself, I didn't feel good. It didn't matter what I was eating or exercising. I just always like had joint pain or or like I was down in the dumps and mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do about that either. And I think that was the biggest thing is like, I, I was like, what do I do? I have no agency mm-hmm. here. There is no information about this. My doctor dismissed it. She was like, yeah, yeah, maybe you're going through menopause. You'll get over it. First of all, I didn't even know menopause happened in your forties, perimenopause. I thought it was in your seventies. Sorry. I forget what the fact is that you, um, have referenced repeatedly about the percentage of hours that they spent learning about menopause versus all of the other things. Yeah. If it was before 2002, they got two hours in medical school. After 2002, the WHI study that said that hormones you know, were completely deadly and no woman should take them, um, which was a really bogus 
study um, and had a lot of kind of bad data, right? The problem is anybody can say that things are evidence-based and science-backed and, and mm-hmm. they have the data to prove it. But, you know, there's a lot of bad data out there and there you can read data to basically to prove any point you want. Um, and, you know, I think this was a sort of an overreach in terms of this idea that hormones were bad for everybody. Not everybody can take mm-hmm. hormones. I certainly couldn't. And, um, and I felt very, you know, I, I was, I felt very lost sort of in what mm-hmm. any options were because there were none. Yep. So when this company came to me and started beta testing, I was happy to do, you know, the beta test for it. They were all great products. They were for dry skin. They were for joint pain and muscle fatigue. They were for cooling down hot flashes. And, and I, I thought, well, at least these products, you know, you have a problem. This is your first line of defense answer. And I wanted to keep that conversation going. And when the parent company of that brand decided that they did not want to do product, um, I acquired the company because I thought this is too important a conversation to let go of. And I will tell you, when I told a lot of friends, like I have been looking for my kernel of truth, right? I went out in 2019 to pitch a show about midlife transformation, multi-generational mentorship, and what that would mean as women are at the highest rate of divorce and depression and decreased earning potential from 45 to 55. Let me show you what we can do instead of having a midlife crisis. I want to do a show about a midlife renaissance. Crickets. Nobody. I, say, I bet the response was was, was huge, especially was, by the men. It in the was room. so humiliating that I was like, "Well, I guess I'm not going to do television anymore, and I better figure oh. out what I want to do with my career." And I, you know, over COVID, I was like, "What is my grain of truth?" My grain of truth is that I've spent my life helping people feel good about themselves, mm-hmm. right? More self esteem, more self love, more self acceptance, more self respect, and I lost all of the all of that during the menopause experience, I felt so lost and so alone and, and so lonely in the experience that I recognized like this was potentially, uh, you know, an area of the market that had not been explained enough, that there was not enough education or advocacy around it. Mm -hmm. And that was why I made the shift. And I will tell you, people told me I was committing career suicide to start talking about something as ugly and uh, shameful as menopause, oh, which again, so I offensive. love to make people uncomfortable. So I was like, bring it on. I mean, you know, really, I was like, you're the problem if you think that I'm committing career suicide. What I see yeah. is the potential to help people through a very significant life transition that comes with it both, you know, with physical issues and psychological and emotional issues. At a time, we are also dealing with a lot of situational life issues. If we're coming to right. this chronologically, between 40 and 60, there's a lot of <laughs> shit going on, right? And so, but, you know, a doctor said to me the other day, you're right. It's like we're dealing with all of these financial issues, uh, romantic issues, right? You know, uh, you lose your libido. You don't want to have sex. Your partner takes it personally. Maybe you get divorced. I mean, there are all these other things going on. Your kids are leaving home. You're dealing with elder care or dying parents. You are not yep. going to be able to retire at 65 in an unstable economy, and nobody knows what the future looks like. There is a lot going on right now when your body is physically least capable of handling all that stress. Oh, so now we my heart are is palpitated. Right? I mean, like the idea is if somebody had said to me, hey, you're going to get hit by a Mack truck, then I would have known to step out of the way. 
right? Instead, I got hit and I was like on the ground smushed. I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do here. So for me, the thread was that I really wanted this idea of insecurity in midlife, right? Based on the idea that, you know, we were really talking about a lot of hormonal fluctuations to, to be the, the, the topic, but being in the um, industry a little earlier than most, right? I, I started talking about this like a little bit before it became as popular as it is now. I, and I'd like to think I did my part to kick the can down the road. I realized that um, what I was selling really wasn't where I wanted to be, right? I saw that we were not selling fast enough and that we had a very reluctant consumer who was very confused because she didn't know what menopause had to do with moisturizer or what the difference was between moisturizer and and an estrogen patch versus like a a ring, a vaginal ring of, you know, Mm -hmm. estrogen or or estradiol. So I I saw how much education was going to need to take place in order for uh, any brand or any company to thrive. And I also felt like I don't want to conflate menopause, which is sort of a life transition, a life stage and a health issue into something about beauty. Because Mm -hmm. to me, beauty is the same thing as fashion, right? It is an industry based on insecurity. If you don't like your skin, use this concealer. If you wear this mascara, you'll look like Giselle, like all the same things. And when I looked at these products, like, yes, dry skin is a symptom of menopause. You know, joint pain is a symptom of menopause. Cooling spray does help you in hot flashes. But essentially, this was skincare. And my feeling was, why would you change your skincare, especially for something that says menopause in the product, when nobody's right. willing to talk about menopause yet, right? And if we had had, you know, very, very um, differentiated ingredient lists that made this specific to menopause, that would be one thing. But, you know, all of these products really have the same ingredients as all the others. And, you know, this new herb or this new root or, you know, these are all kind of variations on a theme. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh my God, marketing menopausal beauty products feels a lot like marketing anti-aging products, which I do not believe Mm -hmm. in. And so Mm -hmm. I need to take a step back. I don't believe that over-the-counter was the right move for me. I think it was an easy way for the original parent company to get around anything FDA or menopause claim related and be able to be first to market, right? Which was different from my goal, which was to figure out a way to kind of reposition us as first defense, rapid relief, uh, Mm -hmm. over-the-counter products for people who couldn't take hormones or wanted them in addition to hormones. Um, And it was just too heavy a lift with the product line that felt significantly about beauty. So I thought, I'm going to do a summit, which I did last October before I closed the company, with my competitors and all of the hormone companies that I knew at the time and all of these brands that were doing different things in the menopause space. I had 18 CEOs altogether at this summit. And for me, it was because I was like, none of us are going to win if we don't get a much bigger movement around menopause.
Oh, I love that so much. And I was so intrigued by all the pictures. I didn't know exactly, I didn't know the story behind it, but I, you know, your pictures with Judy Greer and just all these women who I respect who are in a certain age group. I think that's so cool that you did that. Well, Judy is amazing. She is the, she is the co-founder of a company called Wile, which is um, a supplement company and they do tinctures and powders. And um, really they, they took a very unique approach. And again, this is where I'm like, oh, I needed to go back and do my homework and I want to be um, brand agnostic so that I can talk about the pros, you know, of, of the brands that I really love. I'm not really interested mm-hmm. in promoting brands that I don't care about um, or that I think are snake oil because now that menopause is really trendy, there's a lot of snake oil. But where yeah, I see lot. people doing things, there is a lot. And it is it is now a very confusing market. Also, another reason to take a step back and go into education and advocacy because we still have a reluctant consumer. And that's why I did the summit. I did it with all of these CEOs to talk to the press about the fact that like, don't, please don't do these headlines like menopause is having its moment. We need mm-hmm. to integrate menopause into all conversations, whether it's about work. Yeah. And I home, think, let me just say, or, I think I did read an article that said menopause is the moment. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I, think, I mean, yeah. but I was like, we've got to be careful that this doesn't become, it's not a trend. Right, one point one billion people are going to be in menopause in less than a year, and frankly, the idea that we are not taking this more seriously and not uh, really addressing the issues that are associated with the menopause experience and allowing people to feel like crazy and out of control in a way that they have maybe felt, you know, during postpartum or during adolescence, like we've we've managed to to kind of deal with all these other stages in our lives, but we haven't mm-hmm. dealt with maybe the the kind of last exit on the highway of like healthcare, right? If you are not taking care of yourself in peri and postmenopause, you're going to have a much tougher time in your 70s, 80s, and 90s if you get that far, right? This is in, ensuring that really the second half of your life, because you may live to be 100, is going to be one filled with physical freedom and ways to have, um, you know, a much better sense of your health and what you need to do for it. Because this is a big change. You're going to need to worry about cardiac health, cognitive health, and bone health for the rest of your life, right? So these are things that I, I, I just didn't know enough about. And I realized that, again, I just felt like for me, moisturizer was not the way to go. There are Mm -hmm. menopausal beauty companies. There are menopausal homeopathic companies that I think are doing, you know, much more sort of integrative medical care. Um, Like while, as I said, is a supplement company, they really look at things very differently. It's not like they're just focused on menopause. They're focused on some of those bigger feelings associated Mm -hmm. with menopause. Like they have a tincture called unanger for when you're like feeling, you know, rageful. And I think that that's really interesting. They sent me a hat that has hormonal across it. Yes, exactly. I have the same hat. I have the same hat. Um, uh, And um, actually, the funny thing is, I have it right here. Oh, Um, my my favorite. And, you know, but the thing about, the thing about all of this is that this is a still a burgeoning industry and we still have a little bit, you know, more and more and more, we're getting the topic of menopause sort of in mainstream conversation. I think we're still a ways off from that happening. Mm-hmm. I think, and, and I really do worry about the conflation between menopause as a health issue and menopause as a beauty problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to a spa where you can have Botox and, um, 
you know, vaginal rejuvenation. Like I'm, I'm a little concerned that we're, we are conflating things about the way, certainly the generation who's in menopause right now, which is essentially Gen X, um, yeah. thinks about aging, right? That, that we're going to continue. I mean, we're the, we're the generation that got Botox first, right? And so I think yeah. about the fact that we don't look our age and so therefore we don't want to feel our age. And mm-hmm. I think that menopause is sort of a little bit of a kick in the face, like, hey, pay attention to me. I think it's mother nature's biological failsafe to make you sit up and pay attention to the fact mm-hmm. that you are going through significant physical and emotional changes. And also it is a great time to kind of evaluate where you are in your life. I mean, this is an incredible time for career pivots. This is an incredible time to really kind of build a positive culture around midlife, which we've never had before. And I think that's going to be the legacy of Gen X. I really do. I think it's going to be that we, knowing how to take care of our health, have extended our own lifespans. We are going to show you how midlife should be done that it is not that you are past your expiration date. It's that the values that you've held dear as a young person have expired. So the Mm -hmm. idea that youth or beauty or thinness or accumulation of wealth and things becomes your overriding sort of reason to be, right? Which a lot of us grew up with sort of either implicitly or expressly told. Um, What if you thought about a whole different set of values for you at this stage of life? What if style isn't about what's trendy and it's only about what makes you feel good, what makes you Mm -hmm. feel strong, what makes you feel powerful, what makes you feel like all of the wisdom and experience that you have earned, like shows up in the way that you present yourself. And that's Mm -hmm. the one thing that I'm sorry I didn't do. I should have brought style with me. So now that I'm taking this sort of step back into education, I'm looking for ways to kind of um, integrate the idea of style into what I think is a very complicated moment in our lives. That if we had some more breadcrumbs to follow, if we had some more guardrails to guide us, that we could make this such an incredible time of our lives and not one where we're fighting to look younger than we are or be younger than we are, that we celebrate where we are. And that feels like a much bigger mission. I am. I consider myself pretty um, uninspirable, (laughs) but I feel very inspired by this conversation. I really do. Thank you. Um, Oh my god, Jill, that makes me so happy. I love that you're uninspirable. (laughs) It's my cynicism. I just, you know, anything that's, I just, yes, contrarian is my way to go. Um, But you know, Jill, I I kind of agree with you. You know, I would say that I'm pretty much a contrarian about most things, and and I am pretty cynical and. Aging is 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 hard. I'm not I'm not saying that it isn't, but it isn't a hopeless situation. Menopause is hard and it isn't a hopeless situation. And we're not helpless in these situations. And I really, the more that I have, you know, experienced this, like I want one piece of advice is I would say probably don't try running a menopause company when you're in menopause because it's exhausting. But um <laughs> but also just this idea that, you know, we Gen X isn't going anywhere. I would say that we're a generation of people who do not, you know, we're not like, oh, 
millennials are cooler than us and we've got to catch up or Gen Z is so much cooler. I feel like there's all this kind of multi-generational mentorship and a lot of the ways that you have Gen Z talking about polyamory or uh, gender or, you know, the systemic deconstruction of race in a lot of ways has helped Gen X be more vocal about things that Mm -hmm. they used to find too shameful to talk about. And I think healthcare and menopause and aging are some of those things. And now we're talking about them because we, we've sort of been given permission by younger generations. Mm-hmm. So while there mm-hmm. are disconnects, and obviously there's a lot of things I don't understand about Gen Z and they don't understand about Gen X, I yeah. do see this kind of unbelievable um, collaboration in thought that where we can kind of meet in the middle uh, about how we talk and about you know how we expand our vocabularies or how we think about gender and pronouns, things that are new to us can also be new in the way that we talk about aging, in the way that we talk about menopause, in the way that we talk about most things that happen to anyone with female physiology, because we've been taught not to feel safe in our bodies, right? Something's always wrong. Getting your period or, you know, uh, fertility issues or postpartum miscarriages. There's something wrong with you and your body, right? Instead of this is part of what happens in our lives. And we have to not just normalize this conversation for ourselves, but for culture, for everyone around us. You know, bullshit while looking through this patriarchal lens at the way that uh, female physiology works. We need, you know, clinical trials behind us and more data behind us so that we can be taken care of the way we deserve to be taken care of. That that feels important to fight for. Yeah. And we can't get there until we're taken seriously. And I think you're you're doing so much for that. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank well, you. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of other people I, and it takes more than a village. It's going to take all of us. And it's part yeah. of the reason that I don't care about, you know, I didn't care about working with competitive brands because one voice is a lot louder when it's many voices, you know, made up of many voices. And mm-hmm. I think that's how the tide turns. And I really think in some ways, menopause 1.0 is coming to an end. And, you know, the mm-hmm. next version is going to have a lot more education around hormones, a lot more to do with big pharma and what they're coming out that's non-hormonal for hot flashes or things like that. And I, you know, mm-hmm. everybody was talking about the uh, Super Bowl commercial about Astellas, which was uh, mm-hmm. a pharma company that has a new product for hot flashes that is non-hormonal. I may have said that already. Uh, but, you know, these are big things. Like, talking about a menopause commercial in the middle of the Super Bowl is not a small thing. So I think menopause 2.0 is sort of on the rise. And by the time we get to 3.0 or even 4.0, whatever that looks like, I do feel like that kind of normalization and optimization will be there. Then it is about democratization because we know that this is not a level playing field in terms of the kind of care that anybody gets in this country. Mm-hmm. And that depends on your economic strata or your race or you know a lot of different things or your gender. Um, and these are things that we're going to have to address more seriously because you know, regardless of your stage of life, regardless of where you're at, you deserve the same standard of care that you know, seriously wealthy white people of privilege have always gotten, right? And I think that that's something that, again, I feel really strongly about um, being a part of, at least being a voice in that conversation. Before we go, I have a couple of questions from my community. 
the first one is, is there something that looks good on everyone? An A-line dress. A-lines in, in particular are universally flattering. Um, okay. A-line skirts and, and, you know, that really is because it defines a smaller waist and because it kicks out, it either can give the appearance of hips if you don't have any, or it kind of nicely fits your hips if you have them. So it really works mm. on almost all body types. Thank you so much to Stacey for joining me. You can follow her at Stacey Linden Real on Instagram, and I am at Jill Smokler. And thank you for listening today. She's Got Issues is produced by yours truly, Kira Shine, and Play Audio Agency. And we would just love it if you would rate the podcast. Just hit five stars. It takes two seconds, and we would so appreciate it. Thank you.